And so at this time, I'd like to invite Jenny uh, to come and read the scriptures. We're currently in the mind warp, that is the book of Daniel. And so, yeah, just open your Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 8, and she will take the reins from there. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Amen. Thank you, Ginny. Good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, welcome. Glad to have you. And uh, I thought maybe uh, Michael was just going to start preaching at some point there. So <laughs> watch out. Uh, we are in the book of Daniel, and we're in the second half of the book of Daniel, which if you're just now joining us, uh, it is an unusual section of scripture. First half of the book of Daniel is all the stories that most people are familiar with, the lion's den and the fiery furnace. And the second half is kind of those chapters in the Bible where if you read through them, you think, well, I don't understand that. And if you uh, sometimes lose heart, maybe just skip ahead and you go to Colossians or something easier to read. And, but we at Sound City Bible Church, we do believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so we like to, as much as we possibly can, just open up the Bible and go line by line, word for word. Uh, I'll just say one quick thing. This is a particularly odd vision uh, in this one. Uh, and so my hope and my prayer today is that we wouldn't get thrown by the symbolism or the imagery, but we'd really see the heart that God has for his people who are going through difficult seasons. And I don't know every person in this room, um, but even in that song we just sang a moment ago, it says, uh, Lord, you have known my every situation. And so even if I don't know, even if the people sitting in your row don't know, we can take great comfort knowing that God knows every single situation that we're going through here today. Amen? So let's keep that in mind as we uh, open up this, this passage. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth and your word is life. And God, for myself, I pray that you would guide and direct my words, that I would speak only that which is truthful and only that which is helpful to build us up in the worship of Jesus. God, I pray for each and every person who's here today. God, would you help our hearts to be soft before you? God, would you help us to let our guard down, uh, if not with others, uh, people in our lives, but God, right now, most directly with you. As you search our hearts, as you examine our hearts, as you seek to move near to us through your word. So God, would you give each of us those type of hearts right now? Would you help our attention and our focus to go on Jesus in whose Name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Let's start with a question. The question is just simply uh, one that I'm sure you've asked before. It's, how long will this take? And no, I'm not talking about the sermon here today. I'm talking about... uh, 
various situations in life. Last weekend, we uh, drove down to Tacoma for an event, and my kids asked this question probably seven or eight times. And I'm like, four minutes less than the last time you asked it, right? Uh, thinking about, you know, like, you can ask this question sometimes like at a, like a, a dentist appointment. Right? How long is this going to take? Or a, a certain, you know, a workout or something. When will this be done? Can I be done exercising now? But actually, this question comes up a lot more in, in serious situations, heavy situations, those seasons in life where you're, you're wrestling with God, you're wrestling in your soul, and you're asking, like, how long is this going to last? Maybe for those of you who have struggled with a health issue, a chronic health issue, and you're asking, how long can I endure this? Or for others, it's, you know, stuck in the throes of addiction. Like, how long am I going to keep going back to this thing? Or maybe it's a relationship trouble, you know, a marriage that's just not gone the way that you thought it was going to go. And just, how long can I endure this person in my life causing me pain? The people of Israel are for sure asking this question a lot. Because at this point in the story, the people of Israel have been exiled. They've been taken out of their home. For, for, for centuries, literally centuries, God sent prophets and, and gave warnings and said, you are being unfaithful to the covenant that we made. You are not honoring me. You are worshiping other gods. You are worshiping false gods. And so God is incredibly gracious and incredibly patient, but eventually he made good on his warnings that if you do not repent, if you do not soften your hearts before me, I will remove you from the promised land. And so the people of Israel were taken to Babylon. And they're asking this question all the time. How long are we going to be here? How long is this situation going to last? They want to go home and they really want to worship God. And we see this. I'm going to skip to the middle of the chapter because I want you to see this right in the dead center of this chapter in verse 13. Daniel's having this vision. He says, I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one. These are angelic heavenly beings. These are, these are uh, supernatural beings, created beings, and they're speaking to each other, but they're representative of the hearts of the people. And it says, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? This is kind of fancy Old Testament language saying we want to go back to Jerusalem and worship in the temple with God's people. I am, I'm really thankful to be a pastor, but even if I wasn't a pastor, I love gathering together on Sunday mornings to worship with the people of God. I have since I was a young kid. I, I really, there, there are a few things that bother me more when I hear people say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. It's like saying like, well, I like you. I just don't like your wife. And I love gathering together with the people of God. And sometimes uh, I'll take a vacation uh, and I'll go, you know, visit family or I'll go, you know, get away with my wife for a week. And I only usually miss maybe three Sundays in a whole year. And every time I come back, I'm like, ah, oh, my people, I've missed you. Could you imagine missing worship for years and years and years and years and years, not being able to gather together with the people of God the way that you're used to? 
How long until we'll have the, the burnt offerings happening again? How, how long are these, these transgressions are going to make the, the, the place of Jerusalem a desolate place? It's, it's a desire welling up in the hearts of the people as spoken out by these angelic beings. We want to go home. We want the situation to be different. We want it to be over with. Interesting side note. There are, um, there are rabbis who, uh, in the Jewish tradition... They look back on the history of Israel, and isn't it fascinating that the the majority of the story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel are always worshiping idols. I'm currently going through the the book of the books of Chronicles right now. I just finished Kings. It is just not good. If you were here when we went through the book of Judges, it's not good. They're always worshiping idols, always worshiping idols, 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 idols. Their heart is going left and right, and God puts them into exile. By the time you fast forward to what's called the second temple period, when, when Jesus and the, and the apostles are alive, there's no more idol worship in Israel. Did you notice that? And these rabbis point to it, they say it was the exile that actually rooted out idolatry out of the hearts of the people. And created in them this longing and this desire to want to worship God. So let's look at this vision. Let's look at this this vision that the prophet Daniel has. And before we do, let me just remind you, I I used this analogy last week. I'm going to use it again, this idea that we're looking at a piece of abstract art. Uh, I'll throw this this picture up on the screen here. This is uh, from uh, an artist, pre-World War I artist, Vasily Kandinsky. This is uh, called Composition Number 7. And if you weren't here last week, just in brief, the point I'm trying to make is when we read apocalyptic literature, we're not trying to read a, like a secret decoder ring book with, that gives us an exact chronology and timeline of all the end times events. We're looking at a portrait that God is painting for us to help us resonate with these feelings and these emotions. And so I, 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 I want to further the analogy, though, because in chapter 8, it's an unusual vision But Daniel actually gets an explanation. An angel comes and is going to explain it to him. So I want you to imagine if you could actually look at this piece of artwork with the guy who painted it. And then you you hear their explanation. Oh, and this is what I was thinking, and here's what I put into this. Have you ever had that conversation before? I've had this before. I I was a music major. I lived in the arts building at the university for like four years, and I talked to painters, and they would explain their painting to me, and I'd go, I still don't get it. I don't understand. And that's actually kind of what happens to Daniel. If you look at the very end, Daniel in in verse 27, he gets this vision. He gets the explanation. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So we're going to walk away with only partial understanding of what this whole chapter and this whole vision is all about because the guy who had the vision had an angel come and explain it to him and he got laid up in bed for a few days, okay? So if you feel a little bit unusual after this, just, you know, know that you're not alone. All right, chapter eight, verse one, let's go through it. And by the way, we're back in Hebrew. No more Aramaic. Ah, feels good to be home. Here we go. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, So again, we're kind of back, you know, chapters 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 and 8 kind of go back a little bit. We're still under Babylonian rule. The Persians haven't shown up just yet. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this is a second vision. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the... Ulai Canal. You can go to Susa today. 
Uh, it is in southwest Iran. It's, it's, it was in the Persian Empire at the time, and it eventually became a very important city for the Persians. If you read in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in Susa serving uh, the king when he gets permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. If you read the book of Esther, almost the entire book of Esther takes place in Susa. It's where she becomes queen. It's where uh, Haman is hanged and, and Mordecai is, is elevated. In a modern context, in the, I believe it was the year 1901, that's the first place where we ever found a copy of the Code of Hammurabi. You ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? It was lost for literally thousands of years when the Persians attacked Babylon. They sacked them and they took some stuff. They took the Code of Hammurabi and they buried it somewhere in Susa, literally 2,400 years or something like that, between when, when humans knew that this Code of Hammurabi existed. One of the more interesting things that I found out that happened at Susa was when Alexander uh, the Great was on his massive conquest of just taking over everything really, really fast. He actually held a mass wedding in Susa between himself and 80 of his commanders, all marrying Persian women. Because he wanted to try to unite the Greek and the Persian empires. And he thought, what better way to do it than to have an 80-person wedding? For those of you who have ever had a one-person wedding, you can imagine how much work goes into an 80-person wedding. Alexander, by the way, died a year later, and all but one of them got immediately divorced. It's a very interesting historical thing. But here's the point. This vision has something to do with Persia. We're already seeing that Daniel is transported. He's serving in Babylon, but in this vision, he's now over in Persia. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. That's good. Normal rams have two horns, yes. And both horns were high, but one was even higher or bigger than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. I remember when I was a child, my parents actually kept goats. And we came home from church one Sunday, and the goats had gotten out of their pen and let themselves into the house. And they had eaten all of my mom's piano sheet music, and they had left little goat droppings everywhere. And so I know emotionally I can connect with this just a little bit of like the goat. Just I remember being like, I was like five years old, and I come home, and my parents were not happy. Okay. Uh, and remember, too, that horns have to do with kings or kingdoms. They're a symbol of power. So, so this, this ram has two, it's kind of a two-in-one sort of a king or kingdom, okay? Verse 5, and as I was considering, I was thinking about these, these ram's horns, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. This goat is levitating, y'all. Uh, I think it's a symbol for just moving really fast. Like if somebody's running really fast, and you're like, oh, that guy was flying. Like you guys hear about this guy that ran a marathon in less than two hours recently? Turn your treadmill up as fast as it goes. It goes up to 12 miles an hour, usually most treadmills. He ran 13 miles per hour for all 26.2 miles. You turn your treadmill up as fast as it'll go and see how long you can do it. 30 seconds? I, I give myself 30 seconds. I think I could do it. The point is this is going very fast. And the goat had a 
conspicuous horn between his eyes. Not some little horn, a, conspic- a big horn. One big horn. So this levitating goat unicorn, okay? <laughs> That's a band name, actually. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing at the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram, and he broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat had a mass wedding for 80 of his friends. Just kidding. All right. Yeah. Then the goat became exceedingly great. So he's not even all the way great yet. He becomes more exceedingly great. But I love the way this always happens in apocalyptic literature. But when he was strong, the horn was broken. No, he he got knocked down. But instead of it, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. North, south, east, west. Out of one of them came a little horn. Oh, if you were here last week, we know all about extra little horns that show up and start talking. A little horn, which then it wasn't little anymore. It grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What's, what's, what's the glorious land? Israel, the promised land. This little horn becomes great and, and turns its attention. The, the translation actually could even be the beautiful land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Some translations called the, the armies of heaven. So all of a sudden now we see, again, this blurring of the lines between what's happening here on earth and what's happening in the supernatural realm. We're going to be really doubling down on that in, in a few weeks uh, th- towards the end of November on this idea of the spiritual realm that's happening all around. But you get the idea that, that there's something more going on here. This isn't just a king. There's a spiritual reality. And some of the host and some of the stars, angels are often referred to as stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Well, who's the prince of the host? Maybe, maybe God, maybe, maybe Jesus, maybe in a few chapters, Michael, the archangel where we meet. It's not entirely clear here. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it, this horn, will act and prosper. Uh, multiple commentaries I looked at this week said that these are some of the hardest sentences in the Hebrew Bible to translate. It's really hard to know what exactly refers to what, but here's the things that we can see for sure. This horn represents a king, who will bring disruption to regular worship in the temple in Jerusalem. No more, no more burnt offerings. We don't exactly know who's, because, just as because of transgression, well, is it because of the transgression, the sin of the people of Israel or the sin of the king? We don't know exactly, but truth will be suppressed. 
And it will just seem like this wicked king can just do whatever he wants. By the way, this is where conversations about this character in the Bible known as the Antichrist start to come up. And some of you might be kind of tracking, you're already thinking ahead. You're like, well, this little horn is coming from the goat, which I think is, is Greece. But I thought last week the little horn came from Rome. Well, maybe... That's why some people think that the fourth beast last week is, is Greece, and this is Greece, and it's the same little horn. Maybe it's two different little horns. Here, here's a, here's a, just a thing to consider. Maybe there's more than one Antichrist. Maybe Antichrist is not so much one singular figure as it is a pattern for us to watch for among those leaders who exercise power in a way that is anti-the Messiah. Come back on November 10th for Antichrist Sunday. It's going to be great. <laughs> I keep promising you this. I'm, I'm serious. We're going to have a whole Sunday on the Antichrist. Invite your friends. Uh, you can download my PDF of predictions for $6.66, and it'll be, yeah. All right, verse 13. <laughs> Sorry. Then I, that was a joke if you're new. Uh, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long, this vision that you're seeing, how long is this going to happen? The regular burnt offering and the, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, again, Initially, we're excited. We got an actual number, a real-life actual number. That's how many days it's going to be. Well, hold, hold, hold on to your highlighters for a minute here. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let's keep going. We'll come back to 2300 in a minute. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. When angels show up in the Bible... They usually show up one of two ways. Number one, they just look like a man. They look like a human being. There are many stories uh, in the Old Testament of angels showing up and people just having conversations with them like they would have with a regular, just a person. This is why in the book of Hebrews it says uh, to be hospitable because some have entertained angels without even knowing it. The other way that angels appear is usually quite terrifying flames and fire and like the, 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 the response that people, everyone has is they fall to the ground as though they were dead. So here's one appearing like a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai River. So like a voice is kind of coming from the middle of the river and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. This is the first time in the entire Bible where an angel is given a proper name. Gabriel means the Lord is my strength. It also could mean, it could be translated as the strong one of the Lord. You know that Gabriel appears here, and we're going to see him a little bit more in Daniel. He only appears by name in one other place in the entire Bible. Do you know where that is? Not in Revelation, the Gospel of Luke. He appears to Mary to come and tell her that she will be the one to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah that Daniel talked so much about. Cool connection. Gabriel, 
Make this man understand the vision. I like how strong that is. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, oh, now I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, O, o human being, O mere mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, when we read that, remember, we read it for the time of the end. We, through our uh, kind of cultural lenses, we assume that means the end, like the final end times. But what was, what was Daniel and what were the holy ones? What were they just talking about? We're talking about actually in context, the end of the exile. The end of this period where worship is disrupted. So remember, we always got to put ourselves into the, 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 the position of like the first hearers. Before we start asking, well, is it about the end times? Try to understand the Bible in its context, what they are saying to the people that they are writing to. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he didn't let me nap. He touched me and made me stand up. It's like he fainted. It's like he just was overwhelmed with awe at this, this Gabriel, this, this supernatural being that appeared to him. He said, behold, I'm going to make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Guys, we got an explanation. How happy are we? Yeah, thank you. Party time. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. Gabriel says the two horns, the kind of two-in-one kingdom is the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. This is great. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king or the primary king. So who do we think of as the primary king when we think of the empire of Greece? It's Alexander the Great, who uh, between the ages of 23 and 32 conquered faster the entire world, more than, more than anyone had ever seen in human history. And as for the horn that was broken, let me just blast through this. I'm going to give you a little history in a minute here. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, it's almost like God says, when, I'm, when, I, when I let them push it all the way to the edge, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. So there's another king coming. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and he shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints by his cunning. So this guy, he, he understands riddles, he's, he's wise, he's cunning. He'll make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he will be broken, not by any human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But Daniel, seal it up. Seal it up. For it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. 2,300 days. Awesome. When is that going to happen? Many days from now. 
So close. We're so close. So let me just talk you through a little bit of history of how things played out after this vision came to Daniel. First of all, we know that the ram stands for the the Medo-Persian Empire. It's well documented in history, kind of the two-in-one combined. It'd be like if Canada and America joined forces finally and went and attacked England or so, I don't know, like we're, we're, we're a, a joint two-in-one sort of kingdom. We know that the goat stands for Greece. We are explicitly told that. And we can then, by extrapolation, we can say that this conspicuous horn refers to Alexander the Great. And what's really interesting is if you, if you are familiar with this period of history, it's called Hellenism. The, 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 the Greek word for Greece is Helen. Uh, it's Hellenism, the spread of Greek thought and language. After Alexander died, anybody want to take a wild guess as to how many kingdoms that was split into? Four! Ding, 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 you got it. Uh, he put a guy named Cassander in charge of kind of the main Greece portion. That would be the kingdom of the West. He put a guy named uh, Lysimachus in like Turkey, Asia Minor. That would be the kingdom to the north. He put a guy named Ptolemy in charge of the kingdom to the south, like in Egypt. And he put a guy named Seleucid, uh, Seleucus, sorry, uh, the Seleucidian Empire. I'm just going to say it real confidently. I probably am doing it uh, mis-service. But uh, he put him like, kind of in Syria off to the east. And what's, what's interesting about this little horn is there is a king that comes from the east, the Seleucidian Empire, a guy named Antiochus IV. And boy, was he boastful because he changed his name, or he should, I should say he added on to his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, which if you know what the meaning of the word epiphany is, it's an appearance of the gods. I am Antiochus, God showing up. And he was horrible. He was absolutely horrible. He had a particular vendetta against Egypt. He really wanted to take over the kingdom to the south. He really wanted to, 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 to conquer this, you know, the Ptolemaic dynasty. So this guy Antiochus is up in Syria, and he keeps going down and wanting to fight with Egypt. Syria, Egypt, Syria, Egypt. Think of your map. What's right directly in between Syria and Egypt? Israel. So guess who would get their rear end kicked every few months or years whenever Antiochus would, would go through. In fact, there's one particular time where Antiochus goes down to Egypt, he gets defeated, and he's so mad that he decides to march back up and just attack Jerusalem really for, just to kind of take out his frustration. Like somebody kind of kicking a dog after they, you know, lost the big football game or something. You might know that he goes in and, and he, he's really putting a lot of pressure throughout the whole world. Everybody needs to speak Greek. Everyone needs to worship the Greek gods. And, and, and you may know this, the Jewish people in this time, they're very happy to finally be back home. The exile's done. They've rebuilt the temple. They're trying to kind of reestablish themselves as a people. And he says, no, you have to only worship the Greek gods. And he goes into the temple and he, he, he does a sacrifice of unclean animals in the temple to intentionally desecrate it. And you guys can read in the book of Maccabees, uh, a guy named Judah Maccabees raised up and finally resisted him and kicked him out and they reconsecrated the temple and that's why we have Hanukkah to this day. 
It all comes from this period of history. It all comes from this little horn making great boasts and great blasphemies. But the last piece we kind of need to understand is this whole thing of 2,300 days. It, it really clearly refers to a time of tribulation, but what exactly does it mean? There are three main interpretive positions on this idea of 2,300 days. The first one is that it is 2,300 literal morning and evening days. Because you remember how it says it's, you know, the, the 2,300 mornings and evenings. So that means literally 2,300 days, about six years and four months. And, and there would be a disruption in the sacrifices for about that time. And actually, if you look, well, let me tell you the second one. The second one is actually half of that 1,150 days because how many sacrifices are offered per day? Two. In the temple, there's a morning sacrifice and there's an evening sacrifice. So 2,300 morning and then evening sacrifices means it's 1,150 days, which is about three years and two months. And then some people go, oh, well, the three years and two months, that's real close to the time times and half a times, three and a half years thing that we looked at in chapter seven. And then everyone starts getting their charts out and their graphs out. And if you look at history... The way it worked out is there was a disruption of worship in the temple for about roughly three and a half years. But actually, if you look at the time that Antiochus was persecuting Israel, it's closer to the six and a half, seven years. But the chronology is not exact in either case. You have to do some origami to make it work. Third interpretive option, though, is this idea that 2,300 days stands for a period of time that is less than seven years. It's not a full period of judgment. So it's a more, again, it's a more symbolic approach to the number. Here's the point. Here's the point. However the chronology works out, however the numbers work out, whether it's symbolic, literal 2,300, or half that, the point is this that evil will not reign forever. That God has set an appointed time when this period of suffering will come to an end. And though this little horn, though this Antiochus, though this king thinks that he is a god, in fact, when the time is complete, the one true God will show up, will flex his strong right arm and his mighty power, and he will show who the rightful God of the universe is. That's the point. That's the point. And friends, we now, as, as believers who are on the other side of the cross, we have the great privilege to look back on this period of history and say, we know where this is all leading. We know when God himself shows up at the temple in Jerusalem, it's Jesus Christ, the Messiah the Son of God and the Son of Man. And I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Galatians. He says this, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why didn't the Messiah show up while the people were in exile? Why didn't the Messiah show up 
when the people first went back into Jerusalem? Why didn't the Messiah show up when this Antiochus Epiphanes was, was wreaking such havoc? Why didn't the Messiah show up at any other point in human history? He showed up when the fullness of time had come at the exact right moment when God determined that Jesus would come. And you and I can look back and we can say, wow, it's great that Jesus came. But can you put yourself in the position of those people who are being trampled, wondering, God, when will you send that Messiah you promised? When is the king, when is the the offspring of David going to come? We're going to get more into the the numbers uh, in, in future weeks here, but it's really interesting that around the time when Jesus came, He was not the only person claiming to be the Messiah. There were many would-be Messiahs. And all of them, all of them had this mentality that they are going to march up and conquer Rome and defeat the bad guys and reestablish the nation of Israel. And they're going to, you know, just, it's all going to, we're going to get back to the good old days like we had under King David. But, but, But this Messiah... Our Messiah, the one true Messiah that was promised by God, had a different approach. Well, he's going to confront the forces of evil, but do you know how he's going to do it? By dying on a cross. Matthew 27, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people of God in In the old times, they may have felt forsaken by God. We've got these horrible Greek Syrian kings just doing unspeakable, horrific abominations in the temple. Where is God? Has he forsaken us? Has he forgotten about us? When God shows up in the person and the work of Jesus, Jesus experiences everything. Everything that we experience, even beyond, even to the point of actually being forsaken by the Father so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus, if if you've ever felt a, a sense of like frustration, like, wow, this is hard. Wow, this situation in my life is difficult. Can I just say, Jesus knows. Because we serve a victorious Messiah who does show up and flex his mighty arm and his great power, but he does it by dying on a cross first in our place for our sins and then on the third day rising to new life, proving that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so I think we can say kind of the big idea for, for this is that even when we must wait, We can trust Jesus through trials. We can trust Jesus. We can look at all this history. This is some fascinating history. In fact, if you want some more history, I've I've linked to an article up on the website. You can go read some more about it or go watch some, you know, find some documentaries about, uh, you know, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greeks and all that sort of, it's very, very fascinating. It's really an incredibly uh, uh, just interesting period of, of human history. But don't miss the point. That's all context. The point is, 
when you're in the middle of that fascinating history, sometimes it doesn't feel so fascinating, does it? Sometimes it feels painful. Sometimes it feels hard. Some of you have stories in your life that you can tell and you can look back on and you can say, man, God was doing this and God was doing that and he brought us through and it's really interesting and it's really cool. But if you put yourself back in that situation, you might remember it didn't feel so fascinating or interesting in the middle of the trial. And so it raises this question, wouldn't it be better if we just knew? Wouldn't it be better? Like, it's so great that Gabriel shows up and says, oh, it's Medo-Persia, and it's Greece, and it's 2300 morning and evenings, and then it's like, okay, well, when, and how's this all going to work out? Ah, seal it up. Later. And Daniel did not understand the vision. We are told in the text, he didn't understand the vision. How many of you have ever been walking through a difficult season in life, and you just wish that an angel from heaven would show up and would just give you the rundown, like how long this is all going to last? Wouldn't it be better if we just knew? A few months ago, my wife started working on a blog post. We actually published it up on the website this week. You can read it. I'll, I'll link to it on the website as well. But she noticed she was sitting in traffic on I-5. And when I say sitting, I mean just like sitting completely still, you know, that parking lot that's known as I-5. And she started to notice this phenomenon where people kept like creeping their cars out onto the edge of the road and then like kind of creeping their car back in. Raise your hand if you've been guilty of doing that, right? What are you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying? You're trying to look and you're trying to see. Let me just... Let me just ask you a question. What difference does that actually make? (laughs) You pull out, it's like, oh, there's a car on fire. I will use my Superman icy breath to put the car fire out and then my strength to move the car and then we'll all be on our merry way. No, your butt is still going to sit there in I-5 parking lot, right? Like, what does it actually do? What does it actually help? It, we, we feel like, well, actually, maybe some of you more licentious folks, it's like you pull out on the curb, like, oh, that traffic is there for a while. We ain't going anywhere. And then you're going to hop the curb and start driving back the opposite direction. It actually pushes you to sin. Others of you, you pull over, you see, oh, there's, there's construction. I will now sit here in my smug self-satisfaction, even though I'm not actually moving forward, but at least I know and I have some semblance of control, and I can feel superior. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> if I just knew, I would make better decisions. I was, um, there's, a, there's a section in, I won't quote it at length, but in Tremper Longman's commentary. You know my, my close personal friend, Tremper Longman? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I asked him if I could take the selfie with him so that I could make this joke right now, and he said, yes, absolutely. So, uh, Tremper Longman, you, get that off there, please. <laughs> in his section on this chapter in Daniel 8, he tells a story of, there was kind of a, an end times mania in 1993, 94, and a guy wrote a book, a guy named uh, Harold Camping wrote a book called 1994, question mark, in which he predicted that Jesus would return in 1994, and Tremper Longman debated him, and he says, uh, Harold, Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour, to which Harold Camping says, I don't know the day or the hour, I know the month and the year. (laughs) But uh, Tremper Longman recalls talking with some people during this debate and, and hearing people saying things like, oh, yeah, I have completely maxed out all of my credit cards 
and I've stopped paying any of my bills because Jesus is coming back in four months. I don't need to worry about it. Talked with another couple who had serious marriage difficulties, but they stopped going to marriage counseling because, well, Jesus is coming back in a few months and we just don't need to work on our relationship anymore. Sometimes, let me just hear me on this. Sometimes it is an act of great mercy that the Lord does not tell us the whole plan. Because we're either, like those examples, we're going to run into sin. We're going to run into licentiousness. We're going to, you know, we're stuck in traffic, but we're going to just hop the curb. Oh, my, my marriage is difficult right now, but if God told me that exactly three years from now our marriage is going to be fine, well, I can just hang on and endure. Maybe I can look at a little illicit material on my computer to get me by for these next three years until our marriage becomes good again, like whatever it might be. Or the other one is, well, if you know how it's going to work out, then you just sit there, again, in your pride and in your self-sufficiency, not relying upon God every step of the way. It is a great act of mercy that God does not tell us everything. And so... Like so many of the Psalms, we pray out how long? Psalm 6, for example, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, and my soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? How long will this health situation last? How long will I continue to struggle with this particular sin? How long is my spouse going to keep hurting me in this way? How long am I going to have to watch my child struggle? How long are the politics of the age going to continue as they are? How long... Will war go on? How long will this false teacher be out there speaking things about God that are just not true and they seem to just get a bigger and bigger audience every single day? How long will my depression or my anxiety last? Am I always going to struggle with these feelings that my my mental health is just taking over my life? How long do I have to keep on living, Lord? How long? How long? There's some real honest prayers in the Bible that include the words, how long? I read Job 7 this week where Job prays to the Lord. He's like, why do you concern yourself with me? Why don't you just leave me alone? Some of you have been there and you know that feeling. So I want to offer you three, three thoughts if you're in that position of suffering, in addition to just crying out to the Lord how long, one place to start would be with repentance. Now, I put an asterisk on there on purpose because I need you to hear me loud and clear. Not all our suffering is directly related to some sin that we have done. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. We should not be so presumptuous like Job's friends to assume that if they're suffering, there must be sin, but we also should not be so prideful to assume that there is no sin. We should bring our hearts before the Lord and let him examine them. Maybe there there is some sin. It's just, I'll just say this. It's never a bad idea 
to just check your heart and see. And in fact, next week, we're going to see Daniel is praying prayers of repentance. That's exactly where the, the, the storyline goes. So, so repentance is a, a good first step to at least examine. Number two, this one's always a good step, is community. Relationships and community. You know, we talk about this a lot, you know, get involved in community, and even Michael, when he was up here doing the welcome this morning, he's talking about being welcomed with, with open arms. You guys, this is the fight that we have as a church community in a place like the North Seattle suburbs where it's like people are dying and just struggling to find community and relationship and we kind of don't know how to do it. I'm just speaking in broad strokes here. Pastor Shane shared a, a TED talk with a couple of us earlier this week and found this really, really fascinating about the idea of like when, when we're suffering about how we need each other. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote, the, the lady's name is uh, Kelly McGonigal, not Professor McGonigal, but Kelly McGonigal. And she's talking about, I'll just read this to you. She, she's talking about, um, it's related to physical health. You know how stress is bad for your physical health, right? But she talks about how there's ways to use stress that actually uh, mitigate those, the physical health risk. And she says this, we need to talk about a hormone, oxytocin. And I know oxytocin has already gotten as much hype as a hormone can get. That's a weird <laughs> sentence. But it even has its own cute nickname, the cuddle hormone, because it's released when you hug someone. But that is a very small part of what oxytocin is involved in. Here's what most people don't understand about oxytocin. It's a stress hormone. Your pituitary gland pumps this stuff out as part of the stress response. So if you're going through a stressful situation, yeah, adrenaline kicks in, but she's saying that biologically oxytocin is, is pumped out as part of the stress response. It's as much a part of stress response as the adrenaline that makes your heart pound. And when, here's the kicker, when oxytocin is released in the stress response, it is motivating you to seek support. Your biological stress response is nudging you to tell someone how you feel instead of bottling it up. Your stress response wants to make sure you notice when someone else in your life is struggling so that you can support each other. When life is difficult, your stress response wants you to be surrounded by people who care about you. And when you reach out to others uh, under stress, either to seek support or to help someone else, you release more of this hormone your stress response becomes healthier and you actually recover faster from stress. There's all sorts of interesting statistics and data that she shows in this. I find this amazing that your stress response has a built-in mechanism for resilience and that mechanism is human connection. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when putting us together. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You need people in your life at a deeper level than, oh, let's read a Bible verse together to talk about the real stuff of life. And then lastly, trust. Sometimes, again, we can talk about trust or faith, but maybe the word I, I should have used here would be embrace the mystery. Because I love you, but you're not going to get told all the information and all the details. You're just not. And if you sit around spending all of your time, Lord, how long is this going to go? When is this going to end? When? And, and, and your well-being is going to depend on that I fear that you're going to be gravely disappointed. But here's what I do know. Our God is good all the time. He sent his son Jesus at the exact right time. He has not forgotten you. His ear is not dull to your pain and your suffering and his arm is not too short to save. And so we trust and we embrace the mystery that is life. And we cry out, how long, O oh Lord, 
but my soul trusts in you. I want to pray for us and we're going to, in a minute, we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And this is an opportunity for us to bring our suffering to the Lord and even to just hold in his presence. Let me pray for us now. God, we bring our, our suffering and our pains to you. God, we, we bring, um, God, just all of the situations, the ones that I don't know about, the ones that we all don't know about, but God, we trust that you know. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And yet we trust in you. Help us to rely upon your grace more deeply every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Jamin. Thanks, Pastor Aaron. As we turn our hearts towards communion, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we have so much to be thankful for, Father, that we have the the Lord of the universe, the God of the universe, who is there for us. You care about us so much that you sent Jesus, Jesus who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, Father, who suffered in the worst possible ways Jesus did, and yet he turned to you, Father, and he, and, and, um, and he paid the price for our sin, Father. Father, we come to you and just ask for forgiveness, Father. Ask for forgiveness of when, when, when things are hard and you're waiting there for us, that we don't turn to you, Father. We turn to ourselves. We turn to our pride, we, we turn to ourselves, Father. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. Help us wait and trust in you when we have trials, when things are hard, Father. Help us, help us turn from just wanting to, or longing to know and be in control, Father. And instead, let us rest and trust in you, Father. And forgive us when we don't do that, Father. I want help each and every one of us feel both the weight of that, of the sin when we don't, we don't trust in you, we don't turn in you, Father, the depths of that, Father. Help us feel that right now. And then, Father, we just pray that, and we, that help, we, we get to rejoice in the fact that that's forgiven, that we are forgiven, that you sent Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price for that sin, Father, and we are forgiven, and that is amazing. And we get to celebrate that. We get to give that burden to you and look forward 
um, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, Father. We're so thankful for that, Father. Please help us remember that and cling to that, that your grace, your grace, Father, that we get to have and we get to celebrate right now, Father. Thank you. Amen.